Thank you, Lord. Y'all may be seated. Wow, what a perfect, perfect psalm to go along with what we're going to be studying today. A psalm that ultimately just extols and declares the intimacy between God and his children. A psalm that reminds us of how much he knows not just us, but what's going on in our lives and how much we need him. So that was, that was just absolutely perfect and beautiful. Thank you so much, Lauren, for reading that scripture today. Well, um, I may be a little frazzled this morning. Last night, my wife and I took our great niece and nephew to see the newsboys. I was very thankful that I was not the only white hair in the group. We went and saw the Oak Ridge Boys one time, and it was a little embarrassing because half the crowd was using walkers, and I was sitting there thinking, look at all these old gray hair. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> but we had, we had a great time, and I don't know, just this week I've been reminded of my you know, age. I was in a store the other day talking with a salesman about you know, some home security stuff. And we got to talk about a whole bunch of different things. And there was three or four of their guys standing there. And suddenly the, the manager said, yeah, I was just talking to one of my seasoned customers the other day. Yeah, I didn't let that go. I said, seasoned. That's what we're calling us now. <laughs> I can work with that. So uh, I'm a little seasoned. And so when you go out and go to a concert and are up a little later than normal, uh, it has its effect. But either way, I'm glad we're here this morning. I'm glad we're getting ready to dive back into the Revelation, uh, this series that I am calling The Lion's Roar. And it's funny, when I, when I chose that name, I really, it's funny how once you start something, then you start hearing that theme. I, I really didn't choose that name because The Lion's Roar was so popular in music and so prevalent, but then once I named it, I just started hearing it everywhere I went. I thought, wow, uh, the Lord's really emphasizing this lion's roar, and I want to begin this today by reminding you that the way we're going to study the book of Revelation is that it's going to be the same way we would study the Gospels or any of the other uh, Old Testament books or New Testament books. When I was pastoring a church, if I decided I was going to do a series on Romans, I didn't say I'm going to do Romans in eight, in eight messages. I didn't say I'm going to do Luke in, in 12 messages because everybody would have fallen on the ground laughing knowing full well that Brent couldn't possibly do that. I mean, I turned Jude into a three-week series. So, I mean, you know that I'm not going to uh, move quickly, but there's a reason for that. It's because... So many times when we try to predetermine how many messages or how long we're going to be in the book, we end up missing things that we need to see. And pastors, like I said, we often go through books like Romans and Acts and Luke, and we take time. But when you say you're going to do that with the revelation of Jesus Christ, it causes fear and trepidation because you're afraid. We're so wounded, to be truthful, we're so wounded by the sensationalist that we don't come to this book to see the revelation of our Messiah and the intimate relationship he wants to have with us, even as he's describing difficult days. We get so focused and so myopic on the difficult days, we forget about the relationship that's being revealed that is relevant to us right now, 
and will be relevant to anybody that finds themselves in those days. So you see, it's not just about eschatology. It's about the reality of how we live our lives as victorious disciples, as kingdom citizens now. Amen? This is a series about being victors, not victims. So I started this series by calling your attention to a prophecy in Amos chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Now, before you get to verse 7, Amos has already uh, Im employed the lion's roar illustration. He's already used it twice before he gets to verses 7 and 8. But listen to what he says in verse 7 and 8. He says, Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servant the prophets. And then verse 8, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? You know, I think one of the highlights last night, the song that everybody was waiting for was, Our God is Not Dead. And everybody that was a fan of the Newsboys were able to sing at the top of their lungs, Our God is not dead, he's surely alive, he's living on the inside, roaring like a lion. Brent went, hmm, what? <laughs> roaring. He's roaring. He's roaring like a lion. Verse 8 of Amos 3 ends with a question. If the lion has roared and the Lord God has spoken, who but can prophesy? Who but can open their mouth? Who can but give testimony to the truth of who Yeshua is and how good and loving our Heavenly Father is? I'm going to begin to ask you for the rest of this series that when we come to this moment, I, I usually do some introductory things. We come to a moment where I want to pray with you, and I, and I, I don't want you just to bow your head and, and let me word your prayer. Because if I word your prayer for you, maybe you'll get something, maybe you won't. But this is what I'm going to ask you to begin praying with me each week. Lord, open my eyes that I might see you. Open my ears that I might hear you. Open my mouth that I might prophesy and declare your goodness. Will you pray with me those things? Oh, Abba, thank you so much for the season of our joy the festivals that we enjoyed remembering, uh, the trumpet that will sound shortly, the, the atonement that is ours in Messiah, and just that eternal presence of tabernacling with you when you come and make your tabernacle among us again. We cannot tell you how much we long for that. But Father, to prepare us for that day, I'm asking for myself, and I'm going to let each person in this room asked for themselves. Lord, open my eyes that I might see you. Show me things I've missed. Cause me to focus on things that I need right now in my life. Lord, open my ears that I might hear your words, that it might go into my soul, that it might be like light in the darkness, Father, that it would give me the truth to drive out deception, that it would be the, the mercy that I need for a hurting heart. Father, whatever it is, let me hear you speak through open ears.
And Father, who can but prophesy? Open my mouth in this moment that I might declare your goodness, that I might prophesy the truth of your Son. I pray these things in his name and to his glory. And all the church said, Amen. Well, this book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, The Revelation of Yeshua HaMashiach. And as such, and, and you're going to find this in multiple other places in the book, um, John loves to use the genitive case in Greek, which leaves you with a couple options. He is the source and the topic of the revelation, and we're going to see him and hear him as the one who is revealed, but he is also the source of the revelation. The revelation is given so that we may know more about him, but here's why I think this revelation is also so significant to us. The revelation is also given so that we may know more about what he knows about us. You see, when we come to the revelation to learn about him, to see him and hear him, one of the first things we're going to begin to realize is that he is the one, like the psalm that was shared this morning, he is the one who has been with us since he knit us together in our mother's womb, and he has never left us or forsaken us, not a moment, not a, a millisecond of our lives. And he knows us better than we do. He knows why we do the things we do. He knows why we say the things we do. Even though we, ha we hide behind a list of our ten reasons, he says, nope, tear that down. Here's what's really going on. And so when we come to this revelation of Yeshua, we need to understand we're going to see him and hear him, and, and we're going to learn more about him. But guess what? We're going to also learn what he knows about us. And that is way scarier than the tribulation. That is way scarier than anything that's coming because, man, I want to hide. I don't always want him to know what's going on in the secret places. I, I, maybe I'm the only one. Let's begin with Revelation chapter 1, 1 through 8. We're going to kind of go through the whole chapter again as we transition into chapter 2. The revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. He sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. Okay, stop in here. There's a whole lot of testifying going on here, isn't there? You're going to see this idea of communication and testimony repeated over and over through this uh, book, and, and that should cause you to begin to key in on why is it so important? What is this thing, this testimony, that is so important? Later, John will record that the spirit of prophecy, uh, that the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the word of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Let me ask you to stop and hear. I addressed this at Sukkot but was saving it for here. Understanding that the keeping of the revelation of Yeshua is going to entail three things. 
all of which must be kept and guarded in the same way the God of Israel told them to keep and guard and remember the Sabbath. And we're going to get to those things, but when we start reading this blessing, and he says, blessed are those who keep and hear. You know, the, the Hebrew word, if you go to Israel and you're talking to a Jewish person and you're not sure whether or not they keep the Sabbath or they don't keep the Sabbath, they will tell you, I, I had a friend say, oh, no, no, don't worry, I'm not Shomer Shabbat. Others might tell you, no, I can't, I can't go to lunch with you on Saturday or I can't meet you because I'm Shomer Shabbat. I am a guardian, Shomer. There's a, in modern Jewish history, there's an area, uh, a season when they, they were first, the first pioneers were back in the land that they had a group called the Shomrim. The guardians, the keepers, and they would go out at night and they would ride uh, their horses and they would guard the borders. That's what this is. And this terminology that Jesus is using right here in the Revelation is the exact same. But he's not telling you to keep the festivals, to keep the Shabbats. He's, he's saying, keep the revelation of Jesus. As you have kept the Sabbath, keep the Lord of the Sabbath. Because if you keep the Sabbath and lose the Lord of the Sabbath, you haven't kept anything. You've lost everything. Amen? Without the Lord of the Sabbath, there is no Sabbath. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Did you hear it? Listen. Testimony. Communication. Witness who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who has loved us and freed us uh, and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And if, you do, if you're not aware of this, that last verse there that we just read, verse 8, that's testimony. That's oath. That's him affixing his name to the promise. I'm the one who sent this. I'm the one who revealed this. And he puts his name on it. It's reminiscent of the four redemptive promises that we read about in Exodus chapter 6 before Israel has even received the sacred name once he gives those four sacred redemptive promises what does he say I am the Lord that's his signature that's his promise that's his witness Pay careful attention to every description of Yeshua, for when we get into the seven letters that he's going to dictate to John, each of these descriptions will be used to identify the source and the author of the letter. But today, we're going to focus on the audience, the people the letters were sent to. I'm sorry, I've just got something that's just driving me crazy. I don't know if I... Um, give me a second. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, when you read all the descriptions of Jesus, a very clear picture emerges. 
He's the king of kings, exalted far above all rule, authority, and above every name. Secondly, he's the great high priest. We're going to see him in this chapter wearing the four white garments of Yom Kippur. We talked about that, the whole setting of the receiving of the revelation. He's the great high priest who's interceding for the saints, whose blood he shed to purchase and redeem us. He is the word of God, the word of God made flesh. He is the testimony who sits at the right hand of God as God. Who he is is being seen and heard in the revelation, and as I said, but so is who we are. So the initial recipients of the revelation will be seven churches located in Asia, what we call Asia Minor. All seven of these churches are located in cities not far from the westernmost part of Asia um, near the Aegean Sea. Now, if you, if you kind of get a picture of this, you have, if you're looking at a map, you have Asia Minor on this side, then you have the Aegean Sea, and then you have Macedonia and Greece and Rome, and you've got this great sea, this great divide between them. I've been asking the Lord for weeks, why these seven churches? What, what, you know, what's going on? I mean, I've looked at, I've traced out, you know, uh, I've mapped them out. Does, does it make a Hebrew letter? Does it, you know, I've looked at every possible thing, but, and I'm still learning, but uh, I think it has something to do with witness. So let's just kind of dive in here. First of all, we have seven churches. Immediately, we recognize the significance of the number seven as being completion. So while these letters are being sent to them, they are also being sent to the whole church. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to use that word church a lot today. So just take a deep breath and swallow and get used to it. It's a good word, and I'm going to tell you why. These seven churches, like all, the, they're going to be the initial recipients and I think it's suggesting a responsibility that they have. They may have been the seven strongest churches, but what we do know for sure is that these are the seven strongest churches that are closest to Greece and Rome. It is from there that the gospel is going to, and it's, if you go, to, we don't have time to go there and read it, but go home and study Acts and, go, and the missionary journeys. It's a big deal when the gospel crosses that body of water. Why? Because the forgiveness of the Lord is now going to be known from east to west. And that only happens if someone bears witness. That only happens if someone understands their calling to be a testimony. And again, I'm still seeking more answers. I expect to get more from the Lord but, uh, you know, the book of Acts tracks the trajectory of the gospel as it progresses throughout Asia and then ultimately on to Greece and Rome. Well, why would God say it that way? Because the church has a purpose. Now, there's some things we want to zero in on really fine-tune. We want to know the Greek meanings, the tenses, and all that. but there's also this is a picture that we need to step back from. And we need to let it season in our mind. We need to ask some questions. Why is this revelation of Jesus being sent to the churches? Guys, it speaks to responsibility. It speaks to the issue of destiny and purpose. Now, I want you just for a moment, and you can pick whichever one you want. 
what would you feel like if you were seated in one of those assemblies back in 80, 97, or 98, whenever it finally reached your city, your congregation? What would it have been like to hear this red, and you're sitting there maybe in Ephesus or Thyatira, wherever it is, and you're literally being read a letter that was dictated by Yeshua to John to give specifically to you. Well, that'd be cool. But it would also be overwhelming. And how would it affect you? If this revelation that was given to you, you were told to keep it and guard it. It is precious. It is holy. It will sustain you. As you keep it, it will keep you. Just like we say about the Sabbath. I mean, how could you receive a letter like this and not have a sense of responsibility that I have been given an amazing gift of understanding and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus and I have to do something with it? First of all, I have to keep it and guard it within my own life. But then I also, a lion has roared. Who can but prophesy? If you received a letter like this, this revelation, not even just the individual letters to the churches, but the whole thing, how could you not have a sense of responsibility and accountability to do something with what you've been shown? I, I, I'm sure they listened intently to every letter from the apostles they ever received. But I think they went home completely wigged out from this one. I mean, I just can't imagine this not having an incredible impact on the church. As I've said before, the revelation of Jesus Christ is not only what we see and hear and know about him. The revelation is what Jesus sees and hears and knows about his people, his assembly. And I can tell you one thing for sure about this generation. He is looking at a people who do not know who they are. I don't mean this to sound condemning of the American church. And by the way, you're a part of that. But we seem to be a people without identity and without purpose. And you know what happens when, when people start having no identity and no purpose? They start creating their own. And here's what happens when we start functioning in identities we create for ourselves. Pretty soon I use that identity to distance myself from you. Come on. Because God's definition of who I am and what I am won't cause me to push you away. It will cause me to draw you near. All right, all right, come on. You can heckle. You can hallelujah. You can do whatever you want. I don't care. So what is the church? May I just say that there are people who are going to watch this, who are hearing this, and you desperately need to change how you speak about the church. We disparage her, we demean her, we divide her, all because we do not know who and what she really is. She is the bride of Christ. How dare you? I'm going to tell you, I'm a nice guy. 
but you mess with my bride, I'm going south side all over you. We'll fix that in editing. I mean, they're, they're, it is a, one of my dad's deepest pains as a pastor for so many years. The, the, the times that I could see the ache in his soul was when he would list, have to, we'd be talking about people who would church hop. Now, I know sometimes, you know, the Lord has different seasons in our lives, and he, and he moves us for different reasons and purposes. I, I get that. But it, it just broke his heart how people within the body, the minute they had some little issue, would begin to turn on the body. Maybe someone in leadership let them down. Well, that person wasn't the Messiah to begin with. And if that person, you know, they, they talked bad about you or they, whatever they did, if that rattles your faith, you know, shame on you because you've been, you're no different than the church in Corinth. Well, I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I, enough. It's his bride. It began to grieve my soul when I would hear people in this movement. And this, you might want to bring your toes underneath you. Well, when I left the church, you left the church. Then you're an apostate because the church is his bride, his body, and you don't get to decide who he loves. That would have been a great place for an amen just because I'm insecure. Thank you. I mean, that's, that is verbiage that I just wish would go away. When I came to Torah, well, when you came to Torah, you came to the first revelation of righteousness that was followed by a greater revelation of righteousness when the word became flesh. And if your definition of leaving the church is you went, you went back to kindergarten. Good for you. Now, I love the Torah. I love its laws, its statutes, its commandments, its revelation of righteousness. But God said, you think that's great? <laughs> Watch me roll up my sleeves and what I do now. Watch your terminology is all I'm saying. We... Okay, so what are some of the terms? Let's get Hebrew. The Hebrew word for congregation, number 5712, is the word edah. And I love this because it has to do with an appointed assembly. Does that sound familiar? When God called Israel to keep the appointed festivals, he called them to be what? An appointed assembly. That's what an edah is. But right next to that, spelled exactly the same way, ein dalet hey, is the word only this time it means testimony. When we speak of the congregation of God, we're speaking about the, of the appointed assembly that bears witness. We are a congregation of testimony. So I don't know what you hear when you hear the word church. I hear the appointed assembly that bears testimony. Because that's the way he meant it. I don't care what some denomination or some other group thinks it is. I care what he says it is. 
We are the congregation of the testimony, which means when we were appointed and set apart, just like he set apart those holy days, we, those days were set apart to be a light and a revelation to teach and remind people about the great redemption and revelation of the Lord's love for us. That's what he appointed you and I to be as the assembly of the Lord. Amen? We keep the feast, but do we keep ourselves? Do we keep ourselves committed to being what I'm supposed to be as a light? Another Hebrew word is kahal, and it's the word used for assembly. And is often used, it's often paired with the sacred name. So Kahal yud heh or Kahal Yahweh. Um, Psalm 22, 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. Kahal, I will praise you. We are the assembly of God. When Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai, they are the assembly of God who has been appointed to be a testimony to the nations. Now, 250 years or so before Yeshua the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament came in, and uh, when it came to translating those words, uh, they called the, they used the word ecclesia, which is the same word we use in the New Testament, we translate it church, and ecclesia simply comes from a Greek verb kaleo, which means to call. <laughs> so in Hebrew, we're the kahal, and in Greek, we're the kaleo, and now in English, we're the called. I think there might be a connection. But we're called not just to, to be, we're called to do as well. We're called to be a witness and a testimony. We're called to be the church. And, and by the way, I just got to throw this in there. There's going to be seven letters to seven churches. And as we go through those letters, we're going to find reasons that every church could say, well, I'm glad I'm not at that Sardis bunch down there. Have you heard what's going on with them in Thyatira? Oi! They should be more like us over here in Ephesus. We're the real deal. I wonder why he chose seven. Because it's a pretty good bet the seven of them probably found reasons not to get along. And yet he called them the church anyway. We're going to see churches that are dabbling in things they should not be dabbling in. And he still calls them the church. We're going to see people who are struggling with things and believing things that aren't true. Yet he still calls them the church. I could really get myself in trouble. Um, we are the call, we're called to we're called to be a testimony. So where do we get the word church? Forgive me, but there's a whole lot of stupid going on about this word. And you may have heard some misinformation. The, the, there, there are several possibilities. I think probably the best one is kyriakos, which simply means belonging to the Lord. And someone says, no, it comes from the Greek word for circle, and it has a pagan connotation because the pagans danced in circles. Guess what? So do you. Oops.
Do you have anything on your toes left there? <laughs> I mean, we're the group that reintroduced the church to circle dancing. While screaming about the word church is not appropriate because it may come from a word that means circle. Well, when God called the children of Israel to be the appointed witness, what did he call them to do? To walk the cycles and the seasons of the appointed times of the Lord. A bunch of circle walkers. Now, how offended are you by that word? And I'm not, and there will be some that say that it has nothing to do with that word. I don't care. I'm okay with it. It has seasoned well with me. I, that's the whole point. This is what Paul is saying in Galatians. If we live by the Spirit, let us do what? Let's walk with him. Ever notice that you have seasons and cycles in your life as a believer? Do you ever feel like the Lord has you walking in circles? Ever feel like you've come back to a place you didn't think you need to come back to? And God says, yeah, you do. We need to revisit some stuff. It's because you're an appointed witness to walk the cycle of his redemptive love as a testimony to the world. Is anybody getting this? We are a called out assembly to bear testimony. And I just want to give this one other illustration before we move on from this point. You know, Judaism gives two explanations. One for the destruction of the temple, the first temple, and another one for the second temple. The first temple, they teach, was destroyed because of idolatry. And you can read about that in Ezekiel, and it was bad. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, they, they, they brought the, the idols into the temple of the Lord. It was bad. And then once they, after Josiah got rid of all those, they just hit them in their house. I'm glad I never hit any sin in my house. But anyway, um, but the second temple was different. This was a very Torah-pursuant, Torah-observant generation. And they would never, the Pharisees would never have permitted an idol to be erected in the temple. And yet 40 years after Yeshua, what happened to it? I mean, it was torn down. I mean, it wasn't just, it didn't fall into disuse. Not one stone was left on top of another. Do you know what that looked like? Exactly what had happened within Judaism itself. The reason they give for the destruction of the second temple is unjust hatred. Literally Jew-on-Jew -Jew violence. They imploded the Zealots said it's about the land. The Pharisees said it's about the commandments. The Sadducees said it's about the temple. The Essenes said you're all crazy. We're going to go live in the wilderness and camp out. It's all about prophecy. And they imploded on each other. And guess what happens? Church, get this picture. Look what happens when the people of God implode and turn on one another. What happens? The temple gets destroyed. Look at the church in all of its flavors, and we have been one of the most guilty of literally assassinating the spiritual character of people who don't know about Shabbat or what. 
won't fellowship with them as our brother. I've heard these words. I was asked one time by one of the spiritual leaders, I don't know how you do it. I said, what do you mean? How you hang out with those Christians. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit isn't confused about who belongs to him, and we should stop being also. I mean, look, look at the building. We didn't build this building. Okay, I'll move on. But, but church, understand, if we're a part of that, we're destroying the temple. We're, I don't need them. You know what? I didn't grow up in a charismatic environment. But I am so thankful for what the Lord did in that movement to teach the church about worship and, and, and the gifts of the Spirit. I grew up in a movement that was very passionate about the Word of God. I'm so thankful for what I learned in, in the movement of churches that I grew up in. The hand cannot say to the eye, I don't need you. We, we're a body. The church is the body of Christ. And we can't start amputating the parts of the body that we don't think behave the way we think. Verse 9, moving on. I, John, your fellow brother and partaker, let me stop right there. If he's a brother, fellow, and partaker, then that means he's writing to people who are also dealing with what he's dealing with. The tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, even to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so John now names the seven churches. We've been given these amazing descriptions of Yeshua as the testimony of God. Now focus on the three things that we have been given that are ours in him as the testimony of the redeemed. John says we are fellow partakers in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. Now, the first word, the tribulation, is the only word that has the uh, definite object, the. But in Greek... All three of these words are in the dative case, which means it's the, the, the. The one the is for all three. The tribulation, the kingdom, the perseverance. That's Greek grammar. <sighs> Boring. Anyway, the tribulation of the saints, my friends, is not punishment, it's participation. I'm going to try that one again. The tribulation of the saints is not punishment, it's participation. What did Paul say? I long to know the fellowship of what? His sufferings. That there's something that happens in the context of tribulation, and this is the word that we use, you know, the great tribulation. It can be used generically of just any kind of tribulation. But the point is, the word has this idea of internal pressure, the feeling of no way of escape, as if we've been hemmed in. Exactly what Israel felt as they, when they were leaving Mitzrayim, when they were leaving Egypt, a name that means tribulation. And now they're on the shores of the Red Sea, and imagine how hemmed in they felt as they stood along the shores of the Red Sea. And Moses said, stand still and see the Yeshua, see the salvation, see the Yeshua of God. As soon as they got to the other side, guess what they begin to sing about? 
Exodus chapter 15, when you get to the last line of the verse, it says this, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. According to Judaism, this is the first mention of the kingdom of God in the Torah. And when do they sing it? When they've overcome tribulation. When they have passed through the waters. And that's a testimony. That is a witness. Remember when uh, the 12 spies or the two spies go in, they talk to Rahab the harlot. What does she say? We heard. The whole world heard. The testimony of what God had done to save his people. They're singing about the kingdom because they've just participated in it. When Yeshua comes and begins to preach about the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's drawn near, he's talking about that God has drawn near the power and the presence of himself so that we can reach out and we can, our lives can be an experience of the kingdom of God. You see, the tribulation isn't punishment, it's a participation in the opportunity for the manifestation of the power and presence of God in our midst, our king, amen? And quite honestly... It's the real path to intimacy. I love this word. The third thing is we've got the tribulation, we have the kingdom, and we have the perseverance. And I love this, forgive me, but um, this word has to do with those who remain. Those who are left behind. Oops. The idea of perseverance is that we are the people who remain, who are left behind to stand and not give up. Who wants to be left behind? I do. Because I want to be a testimony, I want to be a source of manifestation. Now, if I was giving my order to God, I would love to do that without the tribulation, but it doesn't work that way. Listen to what he says in Revelation 13.10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he will go. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance of the saints. What? That sounds horrible. No. The perseverance of the saints is that we accept our destiny as witnesses of God. And the word for witness, maturion, is also where we get the word martyr. This isn't punishment. People being mean to me is not the same thing as God being mean to me. God's never mean to me. And, if, and listen, this, is, this may be the pot calling the kettle black. Okay, I get this. So I don't need amens from my wife. But sometimes when things don't go right, and I know I'm the only person in the room that ever does this, I blame him. He's the one who's there to rescue me, to redeem me, to see me through it. And folks, if we don't stop doing that now, what are we going to do in the real tribulation? Stand still and see the salvation of God. I don't know what we're going to do with this situation. I don't know where are we going to get the money. Where are we going to stand still? Wait on the Lord. Someone should do a series on that. Verse 14, 12, here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Yeshua. 
That's the perseverance. This is why John begins, or Jesus begins this letter to John saying, blessed are those who hear and read and hear and keep the revelation. Not just figuring out the eschatology, not just figuring out the chronology, because quite honestly, there's a lot of people who think they figured out the chronology and somewhere along the line, they lost the Messiah. It became all about them overcoming with what they know instead of the one who knows us, who knows what we need in every tribulation. Boy, then I turned to see a voice was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. I'm going I'm to skip down through some of this. Forgive me, Lord. It's this amazing description of Yeshua wearing the four white garments, the eyes of fire, the sword coming out of his mouth. And what is he doing? In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Please take note. There's a lot of discussion about what's in the right hand of the Messiah. What's in the right hand of the king? The scepter. How important is it for us to see Yeshua doing and, and hearing what he's doing? Very quickly, and I'm going to just give you advance notes. I'm probably going to go a couple of minutes over here. I'll try to be quick. If you were at Sukkot, you heard me preach a message on the Gospel of John that highlights how many times, and if you, and if you, if you have a red-letter edition Bible, please go home and do this. Go to every red letter section in the Gospel of John and underline where he says, the Father sent me. I have been sent. The Father sent me. The sent me. It just on and on and on. I, I had to stop at chapter 8 for the sake of time. And what he is constantly saying is, throughout John, I'm only doing what I see and hear the Father doing. Even though he's already said all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, God has had, it was God's good desire that he would have life within himself, intrinsic life. If you have intrinsic life, you're God. There's only one being in the universe that has intrinsic life, life within himself, that's not dependent on somebody else. We do not have intrinsic life. Our life is dependent on him. Amen? If Yeshua has intrinsic life, he's, he's God. Pure and simple. And yet he says, I'm only going to do what I see and hear the Father doing. Why? Because he knows we need the witness of the Father. Why? Because it takes two or three witnesses. How many witnesses did I say are the witness of the saints? The tribulation, the kingdom, and the perseverance. This is how we're going to bear witness. Not just today. This isn't something that you can go put in your timeline. Time is today. You can go forth and be a witness in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the perseverance. It's ours in Jesus. So how important is it that we see Jesus doing that? Because by seeing and hearing him do the, only the things he hears and sees the Father saying, we have a model for what it means to be a disciple. Because now what are we called to do? To say what we hear Messiah, our King, saying. Amen? To do 
what we see the Messiah doing. You see, this isn't just about eschatologies and chronologies. This is about discipleship. This is, this is us give, being given the opportunity to do exactly what Yeshua did when he, he had the prerogative to do, do whatever he wanted, but he chose not to. He chose to do what he heard and saw the Father doing. And that's what we're supposed to do so that when people see and experience the goodness in us, what did Yeshua say in Matthew 5? That they might see our good deeds and glorify us. No. That they might see our good deeds and glorify our denomination. Nope. That they might see our good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Come on. It's a model for discipleship. It's a model for being a witness, to see and hear what the master is saying and doing and then get on board with him. We are the congregation of the testimony of his goodness in the midst of the world's wickedness. We'll wrap it up as quick as I can. So Jesus is shown holding seven stars, which are the seven angels of the church. You know, he is our king, and a king holds a scepter in his hand. That scepter is the symbol of his authority and his power and his right to rule and reign. And now, having been introduced to the fact that the seven spirits who are before his throne, the Holy Spirit, which we now know from the menorah from Isaiah, is also Yeshua, the fullness of God... And now he holds the seven powers, the seven angels, the seven messengers. What is it saying? This is his scepter, his power, and his testimony. The scepter in his hand testifies he's king. The seven angels of the seven churches testifies he is the king. He is Christ, the head of the church. He holds the power. We, we know that there are physical powers, there are spiritual powers. The, these are the angelic messengers that are sent to minister to the saints, and he's in charge of them. That's good news. Hmm. It is to me, because it's my king letting me see exactly what the father had already testified. He was given to be the head of of the church, the Rosh. And we talked about the menorah, the two, 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 and one. Two, 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 one. Christ is the head of the church. And what's he doing? He's walking among the lampstands. I have one last illustration I, I want to share with you so that we can understand how important this is. When John begins his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know that that verse is kind of an allusion to the very first word of Gen the very first sentence of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Would you come here, Tom? You, you. You're my wife. I'm not going to call somebody else. <laughs> Quickly. <laughs> Yes. You stay there. There was a time when it was Brent Avery 
and Tanya Pitts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what did God create in the beginning? Let me illustrate it. Show them that ring, baby. Ow! It's not Brent Avery and Tanya Pitts anymore. It's Brent and Tanya Avery. Because we are in relationship. Thank you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created relationship. Don't believe me? Well, I guess we can't really put this to the test. We can't really move the moon out of its orbit, but uh, we'd soon find out how bad that would be. And the whole rest of the creation narrative is about God creating things that are sometimes are necessary opposites, sometimes perfect partnership, but it's always about relationship. And John capitalizes on that in the first sentence of his text. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is a relationship there, and when you see Yeshua walking among the lampstands, which are a symbol of his church, you are looking at a relationship. A relationship between the high priest who, who makes sure the oil is filled, who trims the wicks, who makes sure the fire is burning bright, and he walks amongst us. How can he write these seven letters so specific to what's going on in their life? Because he knows them. Wherever two or three are gathered in his place, there he will be. He's walking among us. And I know there are people that don't like to use this word. They think, oh, if you talk about relationship with Jesus, that sounds too churchy. Good. Because if we lose our relationship with the Messiah, the one we have been called to keep and to guard and to listen to, we have lost everything. So I don't care who it is that tells you otherwise. There is nothing more important than your relationship with Yeshua the Messiah. Because our testimony, tribulation, and kingdom, and perseverance is in him. And if we try to do it outside of him, yeah, we're in big trouble. Amen? We are called to be a victorious light. That's the, the, the menorah is so perfect as a representation of him and us to go forth and be a witness. To see him and do what he does. To hear him and then to speak as he speaks. The lion has roared. How can we not prophesy about his goodness?